When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Not the way it well Chris, play the intro. Yes, I want to hear it. Oh, okay. Well, uh, the intro actually was sent to me by someone we all know and love. Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, quitters never give up. You are a nice guy to the max. You are a nice man in me at last. You are a good friend of mine in the mix. You are on my side at last. Frank Murphy! Frank Murphy! Frank Murphy! Frank Murphy! You are a working class dog. You are a producer for the Kevin and Bean Show. You work hard at 106.7 K-Rock. You are a working class man. Frank Murphy! Frank Murphy, Frank, Murphy, Frank, Murphy. You are my friend to the end. You are my buddy to the max. You are my great man in the long run. I like you fairly well. Frank, Murphy, Frank, Murphy, Frank, Murphy, Frank, Murphy. Rock over London, rock out Los Angeles, Mudbrookers, it's the world's greatest hamburger. You played the whole thing. <laughs> I, I couldn't cut it, I couldn't cut it down, because I've had clips of it, but I've mm-hmm. never had the whole thing, and so I couldn't do that. I couldn't oh, there down. you go, the oh, great, you can't the, cut that. yeah, the late, great Wesley Willis. I also had a theme song at KLOS, believe it or not. There was a guy who makes professional jingles, um, and uh, production music like you might use for your YouTube channel or whatever. Um, he, and they used to call me Mr. Owl over there, or as Mark would pronounce it, Mr. Al. And um, <laughs> people thought my name was Al. So, but there was a jingle about how uh, I was big at trivia and I could answer, tell you the, everything you needed to know about Elvis and fast food. And <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the fact that I've had two jobs and two theme songs, I think is great. That's awesome. Bean, um, I'm the only person to have been at both of Bean's weddings, other than him. And oh, <laughs> so technically, I was best man at his at his uh, most recent wedding. Um, and most recent wedding. he was DJ at my wedding back in 1985. Oh, yeah. DJ Bean. <laughs> I know. Oh, God, <laughs> yeah, we've known it. each other since uh, about 84, I think. Wow. And, yeah, and I was going to only... say. Go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, and you're the only person that remembers that Bean was married before because Bean <laughs> says he doesn't remember. He says he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, the only person well, that acknowledges. Well, I mean, he's talked about it on um, Cup of Tea in the chat. And uh, I actually am um, Facebook friends with both of his wives. So, um, <laughs> but his first wife doesn't put much on there. She's a very sweet lady. And um, I think she did. I don't think she enjoyed living in California. I think she was happier moving back east. Okay. So I was just going to ask because I was married many times, oh gosh, but just twice. Hold on one second. Uh, I was just listening to that podcast episode 
And um, something struck me that you said about, oh, going to Vegas. It sounded like it was super spontaneous. And I think you said I was going to tell my wife how my weekend was. And I just flew to Vegas. Like, was your wife, were you uh, like physically away from your wife at that point? Well, yeah, I, I was in L.A. just for the weekend to interview for a job. I um, was we're still in, based in Washington, D.C. So my basic history is I, I'm from New York, moved to D.C. with my family around the time that I finished high school, and I got into radio in the Washington area. And, and I worked at this one station, WAVA, almost my entire time in, in D.C. I started there as an intern and made it all the way up to morning show producer. And eventually when the morning show left, I was hosting the morning show. But the company that owned that station was called Emmis. And they said that I could move and work at one of their other stations, either New York, which was Hot 97, or Los Angeles, which was Power 106. But mm -hmm. I'd have to go fly to both places and interview with the DJs. So it was Howard Hoffman and Stephanie Miller were hosting in New York. And New York, I, I had grown up there, remember? I was, I was like, ugh, everything about it was just in 19... 92, it just seemed like a bad move to want to move back to New York. It just didn't feel right. But I'd never been to LA maybe once before. On, I went out, got, went out there on a uh, business trip once before. So I go out to LA and everything's lovely and beautiful. And I interview with Jay Thomas at Power 106 and his gang. And I'm going to interview with Jay Thomas and the marketing director on a Saturday morning. And then the Sunday morning, I'm supposed to have brunch with Monica Brooks and a guy named Chris Butler, who also worked on the show. But Saturday day afternoon and all night, I'm free. So I'm going to meet up with Bean. He had this apartment in Hollywood and you could, he said, he used to joke about, you could hear gunshots, but I'm positive. We heard <laughs> gunshots uh, while we were there. And we went to Carl's Jr. on Hollywood Way in Burbank, and we're having this conversation about what we should do that evening because there's some movie he wanted to go see. And he was going to introduce me to this girl, Donna. He called her Listener Donna still back then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, he says, well, I'm thinking Donna and I might fly to Vegas and get married or we can go see this movie that we really want to see. And I'm like, well, uh, I've actually never been to Vegas. Uh, let's go there. <laughs> so to <laughs> me, it was was sprung on very spontaneous. And nothing had been planned. We had to go to the airport. And at those days, you could walk up to the airport, 1992, not one, I guess it was 1991, um, walk up to the airport. Uh, and just he bought tickets on Southwest like we were buying tickets on a bus for the three of us. We fly to Vegas and then we try to find a wedding chapel that is, can take us. And he really wanted to get married at the Graceland wedding chapel. But the Elvis impersonator wasn't there at that time. It didn't <laughs> but it didn't matter. Bon Jovi had been married there and it was still the Graceland wedding chapel. And then we go. We have the wedding. I'm the, I sign as the witness. I'm the best man. And that was that. So then we get on the plane. We fly back to L.A. And he they dropped me off at my hotel up near. I was in Aquenga um, Pass. You want to Universal or Sheraton, one of those. Yeah. And that was that. He's married now. <laughs> yeah, so to me, it was extremely spontaneous. And I guess he and Donna had talked about it, but uh, I don't know if they knew... I don't know if they knew that was the exact day they were going to get married. Yeah, because I, I remember being saying that the, the the movie wasn't showing or there wasn't any more showing. So they just said they were going to go to Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. The way it was positioned to me was, well, we can either look for a showing of this movie or we can go to Vegas and Donna and I will get married. At this point, okay. I haven't met her. I haven't even met her yet. Right. Because <laughs> we have to go pick her up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the first time you met her. Wow. Oh, I yeah. Mean. Yeah. Well, I mean, because oh. I've. I knew uh, Bean had moved out to L.A. in what, I guess I moved out to Phoenix and then he moved to San Francisco. And when I went to visit him in San Francisco, 
he was still married to his first wife. So I stayed with them at the San Francisco place. And, you know, I'll, really, I was just there because I wanted to go sightseeing. I wanted to see the radio station, which was owned by Emmis, the same company that I worked for in Washington and that owned Power 106. So there's a real lot of uh, incestuous, you know, inbreeding in radio here. It's all the same. So I'm curious about all these things. Um, and then I spent most of my time like going to Alcatraz by myself and Fisherman's Wharf and just doing things while he was at work. And then our group activities were we went to a baseball game, San Francisco Giants game and, you know, went out to dinner, that kind of thing. But then so he moves to L.A., gets the K-Rock job in 1990, at which point I'm still um, deep involved in the Don and Mike show. You're, you're probably here being talking about Don Geronimo as yeah. an influence. Well, that's me. I was the producer of the Don Geronimo and Michael yeah. Mira show and um, up through up until 91. Uh, and then Bean, actually, I talked to uh, Andy Schoen and talked to K-Rock about coming out to be Kevin and Bean's producer at that point. But then I got the message like, oh, something bad happened. It was confess your crime. Uh, we're not going to move you all the way out here because we're not even sure we're keeping these guys. Oh, oh no. So we don't want to move you all the way across country and, and pay for it. Um, and, and plus, they, I don't think they wanted to pay for it anyway. They let Emmis move me out all the way across country to work at Power 106. <laughs> 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 uh, and uh, then when the, that show fell apart, Jay Thomas, there was a left I worked with Morales and Lozano. And then when they finally put the Baker boys on mornings, I'm like, well, I guess I'm done. I need to go. But coincidentally, the morning show position uh, at morning show producer position at K-Rock is also was opening up again because it was a Maria. You remember Maria D'Arcangelo? Yeah. I'm talking about her. How do you solve a problem like Maria? She was moving <laughs> into the promotions department. And so her job was going to be open and they had three candidates for producer. And it was Jimmy Kimmel a guy named Johnny Vega, who had worked with Rick Dees and me were the three finalists for the job. And I got it. And then they ultimately, Kevin Weatherly, who was the program director, he really wanted Kimmel instead of me. So they ended up hiring Jimmy anyway, as the writer, the comedy writer for the show. And then a few years later, when it was, um, I was leaving there to go work for Mark and Brian. I, you know, it was like me and Johnny Vega competing again for the job. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny and Vega I, must hate you. I, you know, I love Johnny Vega because he ended up by not getting either of those two jobs, which are high burnout jobs. He would have hated it anyway. Uh, he ended up starting his own business and has still doing it to this day. And it's been very successful for him running a show prep service called The Complete Sheet. So he finds all those crazy stories about the, you know, the people who do stupid things in airplanes, all the ones that like same kind of stories that you'd hear Kevin and Bean read or Allie and Bean read, and okay. they send them out to DJs and they've got joke writers who used to submit jokes to Jay Leno and, you know, the little punchlines and, you know, it's for, they, it's for DJs in markets like Knoxville where you can't afford to have a writer or a producer and any of these other things. It's all just yeah. right there. Like the company that does like Ryan's roses and stuff. Um, I'm not sure if they're the ones who do that, but there's multiple of these show prep companies like those. What you're talking, is that the one, one of those ones where they fake, um, yeah. they try to, to pretend breakup. Like you send the roses to the husband gets to decide he can send the roses to anybody. And he always picks his mistress. Yeah. yeah. Those, exactly. are, <laughs> <sighs> those things. And all, all of those ones, like, uh, they ghosted me and now I'm calling them on our second date. All of those stupid, stupid bits. Um, <laughs> are because DJs like the show I got, I was on back in DC with Don and Mike, we used yeah. to call people on live on the air all the time. I never really 
occurred to us that we're in Washington, D.C., and that people who worked at the FCC might be listening. Oh. <laughs> so we got in a huge boat of trouble for calling somebody on the air and violating the basic one of the basic telecommunications rules, which is you cannot air or even record someone's voice without them giving permission. So we had to redo all our systems to the point where I would call them in the other room. And I had a log. I had to keep a log for the FCC. Really, it was for our company. They wanted to have proof that if the FCC busted us again, because we had to pay a fine. If uh, that I, Here, Frank has logged that he did, in fact, ask these people's permission before, and their boxes checked off. So we came up with new methods of putting people on the air. And we actually got to the point where... Um, I rigged the board in the control room so that Don Geronimo could hear the caller in one headphone, and the, but the audience wouldn't hear it. So we would hear Don Geronimo on the air say, hey, it's the Don and Mike show calling. Can I put you on the air? Beat. And they'd say, okay. And then he pushes a button, and there they are. Now they're on the air. So okay. that was um, – we just came up with that system out of necessity, right? Well, meanwhile, around the rest of the country, you know, the FCC is cracking down on – making calling putting people on the air without their permission and a lot of these fake bits hinge on the mistress picking up the phone or the uh the the first date who ghosted me and it's you know how do they have so many of these five days a week they can find somebody who got ghosted on their first date when they pick up the phone on the other end they're always right there and they're always seem ready to go on the air and they never ask permission because they're improv actors usually a lot of them you know they run those maybe out of chicago or out of la or whomever Mm -hmm. wherever there's some that you can actually get regional accents, like if you want the southern voice or you want a northern voice. <laughs> but most times they don't. Well, we knew Kevin and Beam were faking that stuff, like when they oh, called yeah. overseas, because it never went well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could tell yeah, the, 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 the actors, the fake stuff is more of a recent thing. I'd say that's definitely more of the last 10 years. Um, not, you know, going back the 30 year history of Kevin and Beam, definitely not. We didn't have, and, and K-Rock wasn't going to pay for that. You know, <laughs> so they would pay for Ralph, you know, that you'd get Jimmy or Ralph or somebody on staff would be the fake voice. And it was better uh, and more fun than because some of these ones that I'm talking about, you don't even if you're the DJ in, uh, I'll say Moline just to or I can be Knoxville or wherever. Uh, sometimes you don't even talk to the improv actor. You get a script and you get cuts audio cuts that tell you what, what they're going to say and what you're supposed to say really? so that you can talk to the tape and make it sound like you're talking to the person oh um, i got a question so uh-huh. then how did that work when they ended up calling the president or person of france yeah Chirac? like how there's a, a couple of loopholes in that law and one of them i think is when you're calling overseas because they're not American and they're not uh, subject to the uh, protections of the FCC. So we used to, one of the ways we used to get around that law is we started calling more international, you know, we, Oh, let's call Australia. There's no (laughs) rules there or let's call Europe or let's call whomever's awake at this time of day. Um, That I think that, as I recall, that was one of the loopholes. And then Jimmy used to, I guess Jimmy used a loophole when he did the whole crank yanker show because the laws in Nevada were looser than in California. So they would go to Las Vegas to do the crank anchor calls because they could, um, they, it was like one party consent on recording. Yes. Okay. Yes. And that's the difference because uh, FC, we were broadcasting it and, and or recording it. And 
they were worried about us losing the broadcast license when you're just, I think New York and LA and Vegas, Nevada, New York, Nevada. There's, anyway, there's a couple of States back then where it was one party consent for recording the call. And then after the fact, after it was all recorded and they reveal that it's, ah, oh, you were been pranked. We're going to send you a hundred dollars. Can we use this on the air? You know, that kind of thing. Okay. So that you don't, you never hear that side of it after the person's been pranked. You never hear mm-hmm. the, how they have to clean it up on the end and then get their permission to broadcast it. They didn't yeah. require mm-hmm. it permission to record it yeah we spoke with dave and dave was saying that they at at some point the law changed and so you had to get permission up front and mm-hmm. full permission up front instead of just you're on the air or something like and that. it's not that the law changed it's more like the law started being more um enforced more more yeah. <laughs> more often mm-hmm. and again mm-hmm. I'll, 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 t- I'll take a huge blame for that back in washington <laughs> <Fred does. laughs> You know, it was back in the late 80s that we got busted, late 80s, early 90s, that we got busted by, the, you know, in D.C. by the FCC. Um, and then the word got around all the uh, it's funny because I would then work at other places like in L.A. And I'd see these memos from the law firm, the Washington, D.C. law firm. All these companies have a Washington, D.C. FCC lawyer who based in D.C. who sends out memos periodically reminding the staff what they can and can't do. And I'm reading it. Going, I know why this is here. <laughs> I, I, I know why we're getting this memo. I better keep my mouth shut because <laughs> I was party to it. Yeah. You should have autographed that memo. That'd be a keepsake. I'd like to have that. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that legalese that they... Uh, even here in Knoxville, we'd get called in once a year or once every other year, whatever it was, to have to re-sign the payola and plugola really uh, agreement. Still? Yeah, and, and in this, in a market like this, it's mo- or actually, I should say, when you're just a DJ, when you're merely a DJ, it's more the plugola nowadays than the payola. So the payola, from what I understand, is still technically could be a, is a problem on the who decides what songs get played level. Mm-hmm. You can read, I've even read an article recently that there's still some question about how some of these songs make it on the air and how some of these program directors have such, uh, they or have so many gifts that they receive. Okay. You know, they always have a brand new TV or they always have a this, that, the other thing. They, they get gifted from the music companies, but I'm, I'm not really that interested in it. So I didn't read the whole article. So you have to look that up on your own. Um, but on the, on the DJ side, it's the plugola. That's the issue. Cause you go to a nice restaurant and you get recognized and they're like, Oh, let me give you your meal for free. Why don't you say hi to me on the radio? And now okay. you're, you're in a, an impossible situation because you can't, once they say, if there's that quid pro quo, it's like, I'll give you lunch, but you've got to mention me on the radio. You're done. You can't, um, you can't do it without getting fired because, uh, that's not the radio station wants money. The radio station wants to sell an ad to that restaurant and, yeah. and get paid for your free meal. You know, that kind of thing. If now you, if you go to a nice restaurant and you pay for it, and this is all in that form, you have to watch the slideshow and you have to go look at all these scenarios. Uh, I, I paid for a nice meal at the nicest restaurant in town. And then the next day I mentioned, Hey, I went to this restaurant and it was good. Yeah. You can say that because you didn't benefit from it financially, but flip it around you know somebody gives you a nice thing and you th- and in, uh, in exchange for being mentioned on the air you're in trouble yeah right. so we had it's the plug all the side of it it's not money as much as it is um exchange of goods and for mentions on the air for plugs on the air well we're waiting for payola and plugola to hit the podcast universe it certainly hasn't <laughs> hit us yet we're for hire guys <laughs> we have no scruples here <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know, why not? You get enough, uh, get enough listeners on there. I mean, even on my little podcast, I've started uh, trading, becoming the, the media sponsor for something. You know, um, there's a couple of charitable events here in Knoxville that I used to be the media sponsor for when I was at a radio station and that radio station has been gutted. There's no live people there anymore. So I still get these calls like, hey, um, the Friends of Literacy are having our banquet and we were hoping you could MC like you used to when you were the radio sponsor for it. And I said, well, you can either pay me or uh, you can somehow plug the Frank and Friends show uh, on <laughs> So I became a media sponsor of this charity banquet that's coming up in April, and I'll get my logo on the invitation and on the screen and on all of the printed matter. And in, that way, I don't, I mean, I'd rather have the couple of hundred bucks that I would have gotten as an MC, but they, this, this is a little charity. They don't have that yep. money. Yeah. yeah. They, don't, they don't have that kind of money. Yeah. I mean, even if it's a hundred bucks, they don't have that kind of money. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to radio? It seems like yeah. it's a ghost town now. and Everyone's syndicating one show everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the analogy I like to say is that radio has shot itself in the foot so many times that it's going to bleed out. You know, um, <laughs> it's it's death by a thousand cuts is what it is. It just keeps doing it. The Really what will happen, I don't know. I, I mean, there's so many scenarios. One scenario, I think, is that the big conglomerates that, you know, the Odysseys and um, iHearts and the other one, uh, Cumulus, will get to the point where they can't cut any more people. They can't cut any more costs. They realize that they're now bare bones and it's still costing them too much money to run all these stations. So at that point, they'll start saying, well, we're going to sell off um, a, a, some of our portfolio. So I predict that the massive consolidation will, will end up with spinoffs. Like they'll, they'll sell off. Well, let me sell off these three over here that no, they don't care about. Hey, look at the logo. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, let me <laughs> sell off. I got you these three over here, let me sell off those two over there. And you'll get a couple of independent operators who are able to scrape together the, you know, the prices also of the stations will come down obviously too, you know, but if you can scrape together the, the million dollars or the, the half a million dollars, whatever they're going to charge for each of these stations. And then you'll get a couple of mom and pops who start to go back to it and try to bring it back and, and run it mm-hmm. as it was. Now, this is a hope. I don't think it's going to be the same as it was, you know, 20 years ago. And then, and then you'll see the same thing happen. You know, those stations will become successful and somebody will buy them all up again. So, but I'm hoping that that's what happens. The big, big companies divest just be out of necessity. They'll get rid of some of their, their smaller stations. Um, the other side of it, the other, op, the other scenario is that nobody cares is that everything that radio used to provide for you is now available on a podcast or on a streaming service because um, that's where we're at right now is why would you listen? Even the station I'm on, the only reason I think to listen to the station I'm on is that, well, I've got two local DJs who talk about the weather and talk about the local charity event. I'll talk about the PJ Parkinson's benefit that I'm going to be involved with, or the friends of literacy benefit of this, you know, we're talking about, you can tell I live here. You, you know that. Yeah. That's really about it. You know, someone to keep you company, companionship. Uh, the other thing the radio still currently has a slight edge on is what's called ease of use. And I've discovered, and most people have, that you, people are only using radio in the car now. You know, do you have a radio? Do you have a clock radio in your bedroom anymore? If you do, you're probably the exception. Do you have a radio in the kitchen like we all used to? No. 
I mean, even we turn on the TV, that's our sound system, or we have Amazon Echo is our sound system. And does it occur to us to say, play K-Rock or play the station I'm on, Lake FM or play whatever? Eh, maybe, maybe not. But in the car, you know how it is. We got to take our phone. We got to plug it in. We got to get the Apple CarPlay going. And then for whatever reason, as much as I want to listen to Bean's podcast on that, it's just clunky and it wants to insist on playing the Nutcracker music, which I have on my iPhone from the time I was in the Nutcracker. And it's like, I, that's not what I want. Stop playing that. <laughs> so it's always the wrong thing. It's a pain. And once you started driving, then you got to pull over. It's a, so it's easier to push the FM button and just go back to that because that's what we're used to. Yeah. So that was what radio still has for it is in the car anyway, is ease of use, which is why all you hear us talk about is, hey, get our app. Hey, listen on Amazon when you get home. Hey, please, 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 please listen on another device because we're dying over here. (laughs) And it's interesting because living in the mountains, um, we don't really get radio. You know, you'll get, I think it's Hawk. You you don't understand it or you can't hear it. When you- <laughs> um, we don't, um, you go on one side of the ridge and yeah. you'll get it and you cross over sure, the other side go down the hill you'll lose it and so um and we don't we have i think there's one radio station and i think it's just a talk radio and we don't even get it up here so it's always been interesting to me and kind of a thought in the back of my head is how could you actually create an alternate alternative rock station like a k-rock Mm-hmm. Um, that broadcasts more up here, not so much in the Valley of California, um, much like a Kevin and Bean or a striker show or whatever, you know? And then, so I was looking into some of the software and I'm not sure how it works, but there's one called the Citrus three and mm-hmm. it's to, to radio broadcast, but how, how would that work? If you, well, if you, if you to- wanted to be on the air on, on FM so that someone in the car could just accidentally scan by and hear you. You probably, I mean, there's two opportunities. You could either see if there's any construction permits available to start up your own low-power FM. And there's now a bazillion low-power FM. It's another problem that radio has done, is instead of reducing the number of signals in order to make each one um, supply and demand, make each one more important, they just keep adding, they keep adding, they keep adding these little low-power FMs and when translators, you know, so now all over the place, even here in, in Tennessee, which is not a huge market, we're in the number 57 market or something like that. Um, there's too many radio stations and they're all, and, and you hear one for like a couple of miles and next thing you know, it's gone because it's mm-hmm. a yep. low power station. So what you're talking about is if you wanted to have a big enough signal, uh, big enough footprint so that enough people could hear you that you could survive. Um, yeah, you'd have to buy a, an existing full power radio station of some kind that works on your side of the mountain, you know, because yeah. the, the FM is blocked by line of sight transmission. Yep. So that's why we generally put FM transmitters on the tops of mountains so you can get both sides of it. Yeah. But you're talking about, you know, it's the next you're on the next mountain range over. So you're it's a wall. You, you can't hear anything yeah. once you cross over it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, or do you, do you make an online station? And and just try to market it to everybody who listens on to online. Okay. You no, know, do you want to? Would you rather compete with Spotify and Pandora and every other <laughs> streaming service? <laughs> and what's your unique selling point? You know, I mean, yeah. I think we're we're getting spoiled because of podcasts and because mm-hmm. of the Spotify's and uh, YouTube music for that matter. Of you know, I don't feel like listening to that song right now, but I would. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really in the mood for Red Hot Chili Peppers. Uh, I'll choose some other band or some other thing that I can just get to 
by asking Alexa for it or by dialing it up on my Spotify, you know, or serious, you know, that's what yeah. I have in my car. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I'm against paying for radio because it's <laughs> always been, I mean, I won't pay for Spotify and I won't pay for Pandora. I'd rather sit through the ad as frustrating as that can be. Um, mm-hmm. But that's me. I've grown up in advertising supported media my whole life. So I'm like, all right, you know? Yeah. Like if I'm watching a YouTube channel and I, I'm, I, I don't really like the show, I'll skip the ad. But if it's a show that I like, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'll leave the room, let the ad run. The guy will get two cents and I'll be back. Right. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> well, nice the nice thing you. with Sirius is that we, I still get to listen to Cat in the afternoon. So There you go. See, kind of so you've got a connection. And that's the point that yeah. Sirius tried to make when they were hiring um, Howard Stern is they had the somebody along the way at HBO years ago. I wrote a paper on this in college. This is how long ago this was. Um, it occurred to somebody at HBO that they could just show movies. And yeah, okay. So then you, in effect, become a jukebox for movies. You know, that's all you are is you're a, a blockbuster. You're a Netflix that just shows existing movies that have already been in a the theater. And that was HBO, how they started, home box office, right? And it's somewhere along the way, it occurred to them that when they made their own shows, and this could, goes back to, you know, before The Sopranos, but that's the best example to use, The Sopranos and Six Feet Under and all the exclusive HBO shows. It became an event. And then all of a sudden, you had to get HBO to, get the, to see the one show that everybody was talking about or that, the one show that was only exclusively available on HBO. So you signed up for it. And then the other services started to figure that out. Well, Showtime, we got we an exclusive show on this channel and that channel. Well, the original plan with Sirius XM when they hired Howard Stern was well, he's got a huge audience. We'll make his listeners pay for it. The only way you can hear him is paying for it here on Sirius. That's the idea. So when you have when you say you listen to Cat Corbett for that reason, that makes sense to me because mm-hmm. you can hear those songs anywhere, but you can't hear her. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I like it. <laughs> and I think Bean, that- Bean's getting people to pay for his podcast for a very similar reason. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think Lindsay has a follow up on the on the Nutcracker. Oh, I do have question. a follow-up on the Nutcracker. Um, oh, the so Nutcracker. I did a deep dive on this. I saw the YouTube video that you did of the tour. Okay. And I um, was just wondering, were you actually dancing in that? Well, I mean, uh, we used to call it uh, dramatically walking or um, okay. well, te- technically, yes. Technically, yes. I danced in the Nutcracker here in uh, Oak Ridge, Tennessee for eight or 10 years. They... We did a bit at, I worked at the top 40 station called Star 102.1. And we did a bit called Dancing with the Knoxville Stars. And I was in the first one because I was organizing it and we didn't have enough quote unquote stars. And I'm terrible. I was terrible at dancing. Well, a year or two later, I got a call from one of the dance moms uh, who was one of the professional instructors in this Dancing with the Knoxville Stars and had then moved out to Oak Ridge to open a ballet school. And she's involved in this Nutcracker. She says, hey, uh, Frank, um, you remember me from the, from the Dance with the Knoxville Stars? Don't take this the wrong way. And a lot, <laughs> of calls, a lot of calls I get start with this. Hey, don't take this the wrong way. But we have a part in the Nutcracker for a terrible dancer who um, dances across the stage, falls down, and we thought of you. <laughs> so i said all right what is it and i went out there and actually it was a fun it was the, the grandfather part or the governor part depending on what production of it it is so you come in in the middle of the party scene and you're just kind of incognito and you do some of the straight dancing that you know you little step here line dance whatever you just blend you're blending in until it gets to the part 
in this production where it's time for the toast and, and my character drinks too much and starts to get wobbly. And then this little fast music comes on and you grab your wife and you start spinning around and you dance the spin across the stage. We, and we would go off the stage and there'd be a crashing sound effect. And then a few beats later, the music reprises and here we come tearing across the stage again. And um, I would do this fish hook with, with this partner and we'd go, I'd go, you know, past the middle of the stage, turn around and come back and have it figured out so that on the right note, and that's really ultimately what choreography is. For me, it was falling down on the right note. Um, get back to center stage and on the music, when it goes, bah, bump, I fall back and I hope there are people there to catch me, but they did. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, this is like that trust that exercise, but gone yeah. wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, or gone right because it's choreographed. They all know. In yeah. fact, usually in the, I, and I did this multiple years, but there were different people catching me each time. So, like one of the first rehearsals, they'll, they'll all be like, oh my gosh, she's really falling. <laughs> Instead of just fake falling, you know. No, I, I, get, I went all in. I went, I, if, I, if they didn't catch me, I would hit the stage. Did that ever happen? In rehearsal. But they, by the time we got to the shows, okay. they all knew this guy's crazy and we better. <laughs> oh, gosh. He, he's, he's really going to do this. This is, this is real. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was my that, Nutcracker experience. From that tour, it looked like it was a children's production mostly. Well, that's the thing about the Nutcracker. And I should mention that a few of the years I didn't play that character. I actually played the guy, the Drosselmeyer guy who was the one, the magician. So I've, I did him for maybe three or four years and then this grandfather character for about four or five years um but the thing about the nutcracker is it's how all these little ballet companies all across the country make their money for the entire year you know they maybe do two productions like they'll do swan lake or giselle or sleeping beauty in the spring but they have to do nutcracker in the fall because that's all of the money comes from the ticket sales and another trick to it is yeah you put your higher level dancers or in act two, act two is almost all the high school juniors, seniors and up, right? Because the, the better dancers are all in act two, but act one, you load it up with all the little babies and you put Aww. them in. Yeah. You have all the little girls and boys with dressed up as soldiers and mice and as whatever gingerbread sugar dolls, fairies. sugar. Yeah. All the little kids. <laughs> and there is a scene in act two where mother ginger comes out and all the, the kids run out of her dress. So mm-hmm. you load it up and you put a hundred people in the show. Because all of those little babies, their mothers and fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers, they're all going to buy tickets. That's how you make your dollars for the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's very, it, very conscious effort to put a bunch of kids in the Nutcracker, especially in Act One. Well, it's funny because I grew up dancing and that's what. Um, so the whatever head of the dance school, it was the same thing, though, but she would have, uh, especially the younger ones, they would kind of be in the beginning of the recital, mm-hmm. but there would be props and stuff all around the stage, which kind of filled the stage more and gave it more of a production value, to be quite yeah. honest. Yeah. And then people got to be on stage if they really wanted to be or then the nervous kids would always kind of walk off anyway. Yeah. Um, but no, it gave it a good production value. Yeah. And my mother told me when I was in these, these dancing things, she says, Frank, move your hands a lot so they don't look at your feet so much. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what you say. You put a lot of props on the stage. It's kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah, a little bit enough of a distraction. Yeah. But was that a little today? Was that a little bit of Jimmy Kimmel's mom coming out there? Well, it's, it's my, yes. I, I was the voice of Jimmy's mom, but I was really imitating my own mother. I'm from New York, remember? Yes. And uh, I exaggerate my family's New York accents. It's probably I think my mom had more a little more of a cultured, you know, put on cultured accent. But 
you know, Aunt Grace. She's oh, Frankie. Frank. Oh, good, Frankie. Good to talk to you. She lives on Long Island. That's so nice. How you been? You've been your family good? Everyone's good? Okay, good. We're good. Yeah, talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, 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 it, when I listen back to it, it sounds a little more like my Aunt Grace than it does my actual mother. But um, that's when I was Jimmy's mother at K-Rock. I was just imitating my own family from New York. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> so when Jimmy got hi- well, Jimmy got hired as a writer and you mm-hmm. were a producer. Yeah, there was not very much time in between there. He uh, he came shortly after I joined. And nobody knew he was coming other than Kevin Weatherly, right? Um, well, you see, we had, you know, Richard Cheese, Mark Davis, right? Have you talked yeah. about him? Mm-hmm. He was the writer and he was still kind of technically there, but he um, had gotten a, a, another job at... Um, I think he was working at premier uh, networks and he and the Iceman, who was the piano player who did a lot of the parody stuff on the Kevin and Bean show in those first three years, 90 through 93, uh, they were working together over premiere, cranking out parody songs, you know, okay. and that's where, that's why he was so easy and so natural for him to do uh, star Wars cantina and Copacabana and the Mr. Sulu stuff and all that stuff that he did. I mean, he worked at a job where they had to, I had a quota of how many of those they had to crank out because oh, okay. um, K-Rock didn't really play those types of parody songs that much, but in other parts of the country, yeah, you need every week you'd expect in your CD that you would get from this company, you'd expect there to be a brand new parody song of some, you know, like a, Hey there Delilah, but you couldn't do the R rated version they did on K-Rock. There'd be some other version of it, you know, with, mm-hmm. yeah, with Richard cheese singing it. And, <laughs> uh, and so anyway, he had that job. So he was kind of like, part-time at k-rock and there was i guess a budgeted uh figure so yeah i was kind of surprised when jimmy showed up except you know i kevin and Bean know the story better than i do i think um it was definitely a weatherly hire it was definitely just railroaded through um which was fine i mean we all liked him i mean jimmy jimmy and i would be roommates when we would do um shows on the road okay even even from disneyland Kevin and Bean would get their own hotel room at the Disneyland Hotel. And the same applied when we went to Seattle for the NCAA championships and um, Lake Havasu, maybe. Anywhere we'd go and spend uh, spend overnight, uh, Kevin and Bean would each get a single room. But then uh, the rest of us had to split. So Jimmy would always call dibs on me. So I'd be roommates with Jimmy and then Lightning and Richard Cheese, who still was involved somehow. He would tend to show up, especially at the Disneyland things. Uh, they'd have the other double room. So uh, even Weenie Roast, I think Weenie Roast is a great story where we had hotel rooms. So Jimmy and I had, are sharing a room at whatever hotel we had next to Irvine Meadows. And we're all, there's some alternative band and I don't remember which one, they weren't that famous, but they're in the lobby and everyone's talking and they're drinking. I'm like, I'm all right, I'm done. And I go upstairs and Jimmy's excited because he's going to wait a few minutes until I'm asleep. And then he's going to bring all of these people from the lobby, the alternative band and whoever was working at K-Rock, they're all going to come barging into the hotel room and watch me sleep. I don't know what they expected to catch me in the act of doing, (laughs) you know, splayed naked on the bed. I don't know what they expected, (laughs) but um, you know, I, I remember opening my eyes and there's all of these people all around the bed. Like I'm dying, you know, like, and, and your family's coming to visit and I'm laying there. I'm like, hi. Okay. And they all seemed very disappointed. And then they left. 
And I found out later from Jimmy, he's like, yeah, I only came upstairs and you were sleeping like the grandmother in a Bugs Bunny cartoon with the <laughs> bed spread up to your neck and your hands like this. <laughs> but it didn't catch me doing anything. I was not doing anything but sleeping. And and, I was just so disappointed. And that became a bit on the Jimmy Kimmel show, too, right? He would show up and wake people up. You know, I, 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 I guess I. That was a bit on every radio show and everybody's show everywhere was, um, you know, here in Knoxville, they show up with the Pride of the Southland marching band and play Rocky Top and wake people up, you know, yeah. on, one, on one of those stations. Um, like Michael the Maintenance. Man. Yeah, we used to have Michael the Maintenance Man. We'd have yeah. him show up with a bullhorn and try to wake people up. You know, it's the, the, the bit, the famous bit with um, with Poor Man. That was right before I think I came to work there when... Um, yeah, they uh, they went and did a bit with him, and then he overreacted uh, yeah. by giving out Bean's home address. And yeah, when I first moved to LA, I actually stayed in Bean's house on uh, was it Hancock Park? It was, I was working at Power One Hundred Six, but I was living at Bean's house for a few weeks while I found a a, a room to rent. And during the, that was when the LA riots happened, <laughs> so I moved to LA right before Great the riots. February, Ooh. so maybe two months before the riots. Uh, and um, I was living at Bean and Donna's house. And then they said, all right, go find your own place. Um, but that's the house that poor man showed up. So I'm very familiar with that house and how easily accessible it was from the street. And how it was right there in the middle of everything on uh, Rossmore, I think was the street. And beautiful house, by the way. Um, yeah, so when poor man and his gang showed up, that was it. Beans like, I'm quitting and I'm moving to Valencia. And they're like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he got the farmland and he got the donkey with the happy and he got all the other, you know, okay. the animal, all the larger animals. The hay, yeah. the, I think the cow's name was hay. The goat. Maybe. He had a goat named, uh, what means sweetheart in Arabic? Uh, Shabibi, Shabibi, something like that. I don't know. Oh, Habibi? With an Habibi, Habibi. Habibi. Maybe that's it. Um, yeah. So we had a lot of those animals in Valencia. And then I don't think he moved to Seattle until like 99, maybe. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. 99. Yeah. Yeah. It was 99. And that was, I went to visit him up there too. That was a couple of times. He um, at the house on, uh, on the Island clown town. And then <laughs> they had the other house on the mainland next to some alternative rock guy, I think from Allison chains, maybe. Yeah. He talked cool. about living next to the bass player from Allison chains. Sure. It I mean, was, I didn't yeah, sure. get to, we, my wife and I just stopped by. We were visiting all the 50. <laughs> my wife and I were visiting all 50 states and we uh, were going to Seattle and we spent the night there at Bean and Donna's and then went on the, the duck boats with, or whatever we did. We did some activity uh, the next day. And uh, yeah, before we did we go on the duck boats with Bean or was that just you and me? Just the two of us. And then we flew out <laughs> of flew home from Seattle. We fl- had flown into like Wyoming and driven up through uh, Montana and Idaho and across Washington and then returned the rental car and flew home from Seattle. Cause we we're just trying to check off as many States as we could. Okay. Did so you get did a haircut you... in any of the States though? No, that's beans <laughs> thing. I'm, I'm more particular. I like to go to the same barber all the time. I don't like to change barbers. I go to the same hairstylist. So were you trying to go to all 50 States in one trip or was this trying to just no, so I was just trying to, I decided before I turned 50, my, my father died at 50. So I thought I need to do something. And before I, oh. before I turned 50. So um, I didn't expect to outlive him. You never do. It's just this weird thing psychologically. Um, but I thought I'm going to make it to all 50 states because at the point that I, this occurred to me was on my 40th birthday, 
my mother and my sister had gone to Alaska and they said, why don't you come up? And they actually flew me up to uh, Alaska from Burbank. So it wasn't that big of a huge thing um, for my 40th birthday. And I thought, wow, at this point I'm 40 and I've been to, and I counted up like basically half of the States. I've been to Alaska and Hawaii already. And Mm. those are the hard ones. So (laughs) like, it's all downhill from here. uh, And I'll, (laughs) I'll try to make it to the remaining States that I have to make it to. And so when we moved from, California to Tennessee, we drove, we mapped the route out. So we would drive through states that none of us had been to before. And, you know, so we picked up four or five that way. And then our vacations each year for the next couple of years would be, well, we're going up to New England and we're going to knock out a bunch of states and we're going over here to, you know, the upper Northwest and knocking out a bunch of states. And then finally, the way it worked out, the last state, the 50th state I needed was right smack in the middle. It was Nebraska. (laughs) (laughs) I had worked my way. Yeah, I was like circling the drain. You know, I'd worked my way around. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever uh, see the the world's largest walnut? No. Pecan. Um, Pecan. Pecan, sorry. I mean, I've seen Bean's pictures of the world's largest pecan, but we went to see other world's largest things, like including in that last state in Omaha is the world's largest ball of stamps. At Boys Town. Paul of Stamps? Uh, yeah, it's just their stamps. They're like, you mentioned regular old poster stamps, right? Yeah. But they had, would take these used poster stamps and they just kept sticking them onto this ball and it just oh. gets bigger and bigger. So there's this, in the middle of the gift shop in Boys Town, USA, there's this uh, rather hefty, I mean, it, it was just, I mean, you could probably barely get your arms around it maybe, wow. uh, but it's a ball of stamps, of poster stamps. And that's Crazy. it. And we went to the ball, yeah. one of the, the big balls of twine. We went 120 miles out away on crossing Kansas to go to the Camp Cocker City to the world's largest ball of twine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in them, but not as fanatic about them as Bean is. Yeah, Bean must have been jealous about the stamps. Yeah. Oh, you, you know I sent him. Yeah, you know I sent him a postcard. <laughs> hey, look where I am. And you're not. <laughs> so who started that visiting oddball places? You or Bean? Um, well, he and I are kindred spirits in that regard. You know, that's something that we've always had in common. Um, so, you know, even when I was a kid, we would go to the world's largest duck, um, which is on Long Island, New York. And that was always a big landmark for me in Flanders, New York. There's this giant duck and it used to be a duck farm and you'd go there and you'd buy, I don't know, duck meat or whatever you'd buy. But it's still the, the farm is gone, but the, the duck remains. And any of those kinds of things, you know, I, I like high places. I like going up to tops of tall buildings and lighthouses and you know it's just i enjoy that you know i enjoy that kind of that aspect mm-hmm. of traveling you know uh even the roads when bean came to knoxville it's funny because i just saw on facebook yesterday roadside america did a blurb and it said did you know that the world's largest statue of alex haley is in knoxville tennessee i'm like of course i knew it it's when bean came to visit <laughs> i said hey guess where we're going <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna go to the world's largest alex haley statue <laughs> <laughs> Dang it, I saw the second largest one. I'm so ripped. Yeah, up. I know. It's, this one you can climb on and everything. I, somewhere there's a picture of, of me and Bean uh, sitting on Alex Haley's lap because the statue is enormous. You know? Wow. Nice. Yeah. Well, I think, too, there's something to be said. So back in the 90s, my sister and I would go on these snowboard tours. And um, I was teaching out in Vail. So she'd fly out or whatever. And then we'd drive through Idaho and go to Jackson Hole and went up to Banff, Canada and all these different ski resorts. And but something like on a road trip like that, we had no schedule. So if we wanted to go stop at some roadside thing and see bison or whatever, yes. or, you know, crazy, and there's so cool 
different mm-hmm. things out in the wild west that are just nowhere else. And we would just take our time and buy the tchotchkes or whatever stupid things they yeah. have. And, um, but it was, it's because now what I see a lot of people when they go on vacation, they're still very scheduled. Oh yeah. Everything's got to be Instagram. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And we were none of that in in the mid nineties and we would just take our time. We'd get to Telluride when we got to Telluride, whatever. And nice. Really fun adventures. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, and that was part of it. We would uh, on these, most of these journeys, sorry for the shaking. uh, Most of these journeys, we would do maybe one state a day or we'd max it out. We say, we're only going to drive for eight hours and then Mm -hmm. we're going to stop and do whatever, do something. Yeah. Let's hit. And we went go through Utah. We knew we were going to hit one of two national parks, but we didn't know which one because it depended on what time it was <laughs> and, when, <laughs> and which one was closer at the point of the day that we were ready to go. You know, so that, yeah, we had some ideas of things we could do along the way, right. but we weren't none of them were set in stone. And my right. wife is still mad that we went to Prairie Dog Town in Kansas because uh, it was dusty and there was just like prairie dog it was dust in the wind right except we were pretty sure it was prairie dog dew that we were just getting all <laughs> we were i mean you you feel it you're it's on you it's you can see it it's gross you know you're it's like yeah so she, that's one of the bigger regrets that we stopped there but some of these other ones you know mark twain's birthplace yeah sure let's go yeah close enough we can let's go nice you know, when I went to El- we went Tupelo, we went to we knocked out one one weekend. It's for spring break. We knocked out Alabama and Mississippi because they're relatively close. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a lot to do. We went to Huntsville, Alabama, looked at some rocket ships and then went to Tupelo, went to Elvis's birthplace. And then we came back. We're done. That wasn't. <laughs> so if you nice. look on a map, <laughs> Alabama, and Mississippi, yeah. I, I went like this tiny little bit in, you know, you can still smell Tennessee from there. So that's very close. <laughs> <laughs> so you went from. Power FM to the Jay Thomas show to K Rock to Mark and Brian. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. where did you go? Um, well, yeah, pa- Jay Thomas was a Power 106 and they mm-hmm. went through a bunch of different morning shows. And then it was a Kevin and Bean for three years during the time. And we've t- I've talked about this on Bean Show during the time that we did a lot of the big Rick D's stuff. And there was the OJ trial. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I found the letter thanking me from Lance Ito the other day for sending. And I didn't even do anything really lightning did all the work. We had to send tapes of the Kevin and Bean show to the jury with all the OJ references edited out so that the jury could listen to something while they were in seclusion. And it wasn't just us. It was what? several stations. Wow. Yeah. I found, I have I've, someone posted, I somewhere found the letter from Lance Ito thanking K rock for uh, sending these tapes uh, to the jury edited, you know, redacted tapes to the jury so they could listen to stuff during their sequestering. Wow. wow! Somebody, so one, so at least one person on the K, on the OJ jury was a K Rock fan because, yeah, we, we were asked to supply those as were oh, I'm sure crazy. as I heard other stations were also asked. But anyway, so that was that era, and then, um, you know, they were making they were ready to make some changes at K Rock, and they and I was due for a raise, and they're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Trip Reeb said, no, not you know, you're I think you're overpaid as it is. I'm like, well, that's a bad sign when the when the boss thinks you're yeah. overpaid. So uh, my friend Pam Baker, who used to be the marketing rep at Disneyland, and we'd go do all these spectacular Kevin and Bean events at Disneyland. We'd do camping out in Toontown when Mm -hmm. she was the rep at Disneyland. Well, she had left Disneyland to go work at KLOS to run Mark and Brian's syndication company. And so she was pushing hard to lobby me to to convince me, A, that I wanted to work at KLOS. (laughs) And it's not that I didn't. It's just that I was burned out on being a morning show producer. I was I couldn't I couldn't do it again. But. She convinced them that I'd be fresh blood and she convinced me that I could should do it and we get to work together and be fun. And I went and it was fine. 
but after three years, the magic number, all of a sudden I'm feeling just as burned out as I had. And then, well, I just spent another three years of not being a DJ, of not doing what I want to do. But we did a bunch of great stuff at KLOS. Um, and mostly what I remember there is the big spectacular Christmas shows and the live radio dramas that we'd recreate, whether it be um, A Christmas Carol or Wizard of Oz or War of the Worlds. You know, we'd get to do all of that with the live sound effects and the Hollywood actors. And I was the one to put all that together. And that was very fulfilling. But um, the guy who had been program director at KLOS and Mark and Brian hated him. He left or was fired or whatever, but he ended up at Y107. So he convinced me to come work at Y107, but I'd be on the air. I'd be the co Oh, it's going to be, you're going to be the co-host. It's going to be you and the other guy, you know, two guys in the, in the morning, Mark Wilson and you, Frank Murphy, morning show. Oh, no, no. But apparently Mark Wilson, this guy they hired from San Luis Obispo had a completely different concept that it would be a solo show. And I was going to be his producer which is not what I was sold on that bill of goods. And plus it's Y107 and they have these crappy little studios over in at the time in, was it Altadena? I don't remember somewhere kind of over between Burbank and Pasadena over that way off the 210. Um, and it just, everything about it was a letdown. I didn't know at the time that this guy they paired me up with had was stole his entire act from a DJ in Chicago named Kevin Matthews. Later, I was sent uh, some tapes of Kevin Matthews. It's like, hey, could you help the producer of Kevin Matthews show? We're going to hire you as the consultant and you can just listen to these tapes and you can give some advice. And I'm listening to it and I'm just I get this terrible feeling in my stomach like, oh, my gosh, this is the real deal. And I've worked with a guy who stole this material verbatim at Y107. I'm like, oh. so I, 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 was, I felt that was a mistake to go there. But um that's what I was there for a short time, less than a year. And then they went Spanish and got, they moved to uh, century city and sold the, I don't know if they sold the stations, but they went Spanish and it was, just, you know, these three little frequencies that are all kind of near one Oh seven. It was like one Oh six, nine, one Oh seven, one, one Oh seven, three, something like that. And um, so then I'm out of work for a while. Um, I got, I, at least I had a contract. So I got paid at paid once they fired me, I got paid the rest of the contract. So I had a little bit of luxury of time. And I ended up working at an internet radio station in the year 2000. And we had podcasting and we had live video streaming and we had live audio streaming and all these things that are seem like, oh yeah, so what? No, no, this was 22 years ago. Yeah. yeah. No, nobody mm-hmm. was ready for this. Nobody, we all had dial up modems. You know, we're accessing the internet through yeah. AOL, you know? <laughs> Um, how do you explain to anybody? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go on. No, don't just don't use AOL. Go to a browser, and then you're going to go to comedyworld.com, and then you're going to have to have this little video player that's going to pop up, and you'll get to see me do my show. And um, so I was there. I was hired as a producer for Monday through Friday, and I talked them into giving me the Saturday show. So I actually got to host my own show on Saturdays. And that's when the, you know, I went, everything in my head went, this is what I should have been doing. You know, I've got all this experience working with Kevin and Bean and experience working with Mark and Brian and all these, Don and Mike, all these shows. And I want to do this. I want to be host my own show. And, and never, you know, nothing's don't work out the way you maybe dreamed, but Mm -hmm. I had this fun little show on Saturday mornings. And then on the uh, Monday through Friday, I'd be producing these other comedians shows. They'd hire they, I mean, they had Ken Ober, they had Bobby Slayton, they had um, Beth Lapidus, uh, Alan Havy was the comedian I worked with, Frank Zappa, Kennedy, remember Kennedy? From, yeah. She had a show. 
all these people you've heard of had shows and then me. And one wow. of the guys said, uh, came to me and says, I don't understand. You know, you're to me, I'm no to them. I'm nobody. Cause these, all the guys who ran the station, they were like the management of kids in the hall and the man and these other comedy, they were comedy people. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. none of them were radio people. And the comedians are just so frustrated. They can't figure out what it is, why it's not working for them. And I come strolling in at six o'clock on a Saturday morning and I sit down and I do three hours like it's nothing, mm-hmm. but it's not right. nothing. I mean, I'm just doing what, I, what I've yeah. learned to do over the years. And then they're like, you make it just, how do you make it seem easy? It's not easy. We know it's not easy because all these comedians are complaining about how hard it is. And you just make it look like it's easy. I'm like, well, it's meant to, it's the attitude. They're all coming at it from the attitude of a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. And I, without realizing it, I was coming at it from the attitude of an improviser. And now that I do improv all the time, I, I get it. Is if you're doing, if you're Jay Leno or whomever, some, he was the Tonight Show at that time. I would use him as the example. I said, he's got this monologue that's, you know, let's say 12 minutes long, but it's got 24 or 48 jokes in it. However many are in there, it takes hours and hours to write all of those jokes. Yes. You don't have that kind of time. So he's got all these people submitting jokes to him so he can just go punch, punch, punch. And if you're doing a stand-up routine on your own, you think of these big, long stories that take an hour to tell, but you can't get on there and just talk that story necessarily for a whole hour. You've got to boil it down to the beats of the joke, generally speaking, the three beats of the joke, the premise, the pattern and break the pattern. Boom, boom, boom. You know, that's the, you take all of these ideas and you hone them down, you reduce them down to just the essence of it. So this 15 minute story that happened to you in real life or this hour long story becomes a 15 second or a 30 second joke on the show. Well, you can't do radio that way. There aren't enough hours in the day to do it improv you flip the whole equation upside down you go on the stage with nothing and the audience Mm -hmm. shouts out a word and you just start riffing on it and adding to it and expanding it and you keep growing it and growing it and growing it so instead of your timeline like this taking up 15 seconds your timeline takes up you know 15 minutes you've easily filled 15 minutes of airtime on one nugget of a suggestion Mm -hmm. and um and then when you get to the funny you're done you're stopped so the improv mentality and the radio mentality uh, made it easier for me to want to do that. So anyway, that's whole that's whole fantastical uh, comedy world radio network with all of the things. Of course, it goes bankrupt by <laughs> <laughs> we were bankrupt by the middle of uh, by the end of I think you know, we made it through the 2000 elections. I remember we did jokes about Al Gore and George Bush. It was April of 2001. It was gone okay. over. So now I'm unemployed again, and I was un- unemployed for about a year, um, and the guy is a consultant named Randy Lane who takes credit for discovering Jimmy Kimmel. In fact, technically Jimmy introduced me to Randy Lane. So um, (laughs) Randy was program director downstairs at star 98.7. Anyway, Randy and I got along and during this period of unemployment, I would go and uh, be the guest speaker at Randy's morning show uh, workshops that he would have for his other clients. And then he says to me one day, Hey, look, I got this client and they're all the way over in Tennessee and they've got this good old boy and they're trying to do an odd couple show like, you know, so they want someone who's the opposite of him. And that's definitely you. Why don't you fly to Knoxville and audition on the air with this guy? And that was spring of 2002. And I got the job. Um, and that station ends up getting sold a year and a half later. I'm out of work again. I work at some, I go, I go work at some oldie station and a year and a half or so there, it changes format to Jack FM. I'm out of work again. Then 
I end up at the top 40 station, but I'm working, you know, literally part-time. They, they hired, they didn't have any openings. They've been working their 10 bucks an hour to uh, work on the morning show. Uh, but they changed the name of it to Mark and Kim and Frank. And I ended up yeah. staying there eight years. So fighting my way up, working my way up from, you know, part-time nothing to, you know, eh, a medium market, third banana salary. Yeah, I, that's when I got in the habit of, of always finding other things to do, realizing that radio mm-hmm. is not going to pay my bills. It's not going to mm-hmm. be enough. Um, uh, so I, I, and then after uh, eight years at that station, I transferred to another station in the building to kind of work to run their little classic hit station for them. They, they had the syndicated format from Westwood one, but somebody had to make it operate. So they give you a box of yeah. Tinker toys in effect, and you have to, figure out how to program it in such a way that it makes sounds like a Knoxville station. You know, the, the songs mm-hmm. are coming to you automatically. You don't have to worry about that. And the network DJs are coming to you. But if you want them to talk like they're from here, you got to send them information here, say this, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and then after new ownership, we had two ownership changes. There it was journal broadcasting. Then it was EW scripts which I loved both of those companies. And then a third company that shall remain nameless bought it and has <laughs> in there in the time that they've owned it, uh, just get been getting rid of people, myself included that, and they didn't replace me. They just eliminated the job. They more recently got rid of a couple more DJs, the receptionist and the marketing director. So wow. that's, that's the state of the world. Even now here, yeah. a relatively small company that you wouldn't recognize the name of. It's a small radio, small ish radio company. They're doing the same things that the big boys are doing. And just cutting staff and cutting expenses mm-hmm. and cutting, cutting, cutting. Um, so that was a year and a half ago now. And I started the Frank and Friends podcast. Um, and then that had to re-gear that after a while when my first co-host dumped me <laughs> or ghost, <laughs> ghosted me. I don't know how, whatever you want to say. She left. She quit. She got another job. Um, and uh, so I've been retooling that. Um, I've got a couple of gigs at the local PBS TV station. Where, um, in fact, I'm even wearing my Scholars Bowl T-shirt. I'm I'm fully geared up today. Uh, you sure well, are. Billboard. I know. Well, I mean, it's free. I, you know, I, I did pay for this, <laughs> but I, I, I bought the sweatshirt. But it's um, uh, I got it at a cost. You <laughs> <laughs> so, know the guy, right? Yeah. Well, I'm me. I'm the guy. I, I have, it's like I use the same. In fact, that's the reason that Bean and Ali use Spring.com or Teespring for their merch mm-hmm. is because I told him about it. I said, mm-hmm. "Hey, I'm using," and I and he bought one of the uh, T-shirts that we were selling. He's like. He convinced Allie that the quality was good enough that they should do it also. And it is. Mm-hmm. So I recommend that if you guys should do quitters uh, merch, if you don't already through Teespring. Um, yeah, I put it on actually both T public and Teespring. Cause oh, what's uh, T public. Uh, it's mostly just t-shirts and mm-hmm. sweatshirts and clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly fabric stuff. They don't have glasses and shot glasses and things like that. So yeah. we're on both of them for that reason. I had a, I bought a canvas print that um, if you look at the podcast episodes that I've been doing more recently than since, well, since Christmas, because I didn't come until after Christmas, I'm um, sitting in front of my fireplace and I put the canvas print with the logo behind mm-hmm. me. So I don't have to uh, Chiron it in. I don't have to, you know, artificially electronically put it in. I can just, it's literally physically on the wall behind me, yeah. which is a, saves me a step later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the scholars bowl show on PBS is a quiz show where I ask, uh, the kids um, hard ish academic questions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some algebra and calculus, but a lot of history and arts and whatever uh, mm-hmm. you can find that online. If you were so inclined to watch it, I think it's uh, it's a good little show. And then they recently asked me if I could do an inter- a half hour interview show. 
and um, it's called Up Close. And I guess they're in the process of rebranding it as Up Close with Frank Murphy. It's only on once a month nice. at, at midnight on a <laughs> midnight <laughs> on a Wednesday. Uh, sorry, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. That was bad. What did I just do? Um, knocked everything. Sorry about that. I'm getting <laughs> getting, ag- ag- getting agitated over here. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so the yeah, that's a half hour interview show where I just. And then they said, who can you interview? I'm like, I, what do you mean? Who can I interview? Shouldn't you be telling me who I'm interviewing? <laughs> In reality, you don't say any of that. You go, oh, I know some people. I'll get, I'll get somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, so I find some comedians that I know, some actresses and musicians and, and local uh, ish, like Dr. Jerry Punch, the NASCAR guy. He's, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're NASCAR uh-huh. fans, he's a famous NASCAR t- announcer for ESPN. Um, he lives around here and his, his wife and my wife are friends. So, Hey, Dr. Jerry Punch is our guest today on yeah. <laughs> up close with Frank Murphy, a half hour <laughs> interview show. So there's that. Um, so I got, let's see, I got the radio, which I do classic hits on a, on this computer that I'm talking to you on, on Lake FM, 104.9 Lake FM, got the two TV shows on PBS, got the podcast, which has the sit down podcast. And then also the travel vlog aspect of it, where we go to the great smoky mountains, pigeon forge, Gatlinburg. Yeah. all the excitement um and then i've got the comedy improv that i do on stage every tuesday which is like whose line is it anyway type show nice and then uh, my fifth thing i usually have five things in any given moment my fifth thing is i'm the official mc for the world's greatest forensic anthropologist and we go he gets booked to discuss human decomposition and i'm his happy helper who comes <laughs> along and so you carry I, the corpses well, I mean, usually, um, you know, some of the skulls, he likes to keep, he likes to handle them more himself. He doesn't necessarily trust me with the themers, but uh, <laughs> I have on occasion had to walk, I've walked through, I've said, let me have the femur, Dr. Bass, and I'll walk around, I'll display it like it's a game show prize. You know, hello, look at this. Here's a femur. Look where it goes <laughs> on my leg. Um, but we have, uh, yeah, we have some of the hardware that came out of the crematory, you know, some knees and hips and things like that. But he's got, he definitely always has skulls, teaching skulls that he can show. Mostly it's slideshows of gory crime scenes that he's investigated and people he's exhumed and, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And then there's a question and answer period. So I'll help facilitate that. I'll do the intro and say, here's Dr. Bass. Beam would love that. Oh, he yeah. He, he as, and his wife are always talking show. about how they should come and I should give them a tour of the body farm. And one time he was here, we drove up to the gate of it um, to see if he could smell anything. But I, I didn't smell anything. Um <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I've always said, here's the day to come. Here's the day you should come and hear Dr. Bass speak. But I don't know how serious they are. Oh, I'm stunned he never came. So does Dr. Bass, is he speaking to universities? Is he speaking to um, coroners? Is he speaking? uh, Um, It depends who, most of it is people who hire him to come speak to their organization. So it might be um, like we're doing one uh, on... Well, here's one on February 14th we're doing where it's actually we're just we just sold the tickets. It's a Valentine's night with Dr. Bass. (laughs) (laughs) And and so so he'll uh, we did this two years ago and he had some uh, court, some cases of lovers uh, spats or just situations where maybe, you know, somehow he he worked uh, romance into the death Um, or whatever the story is. But it's basically, you know, a bunch of crime scenes and shows and the people who are big fans they come and they show up and they pay for the ticket and they get their picture made with dr bass and they'll buy a book and get them to sign it or buy a t-shirt and get them to sign it um 
Then on the 19th, we have one where it's free. It's a, it's, there's a literary festival and Dr. Bass has co-authored a bunch of mystery novels. Really the, the other guy, John Jefferson, wrote the most, the, all the, the mystery part of it. He wrote the whole story, but it's all based on some actual forensic cases and some actual information that Dr. Bass and his uh, post-grad students had done or his graduate students had learned over the years. So there's real science in it. Anyway, as a result, Dr. Bass is now in this area is a well-known author. So he goes wow. to these literary festivals and will sign books. Um, and then, he did, you know, that kind of stuff. So whoever, we just got an email the other day from somebody saying, hey, can we hire you guys to come out to our children's museum? Not that we're going to speak to children, but they'll have it at night and adults will come and mm-hmm. they'll skim a few dollars off the top and, uh, and keep it for the museum. And Dr. Yeah. Bass gets his fee and I get my fee and that, you know. So does he do anything special for Halloween? Um, you know, I mean, it's like every day is Halloween with Dr. Bass. We don't really, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, who cares really? We, we use, what we do is we use the Halloween decorations. You know, when you go see mm-hmm. him, we'll have the crime scene tape and we'll have this plastic skeletons set up and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of that fun, uh, gory type stuff, but he's the real deal. That's how I met him in the first place is the first job I had here is uh, they brought Dr. Bass on to be interviewed in advance of Halloween and told me, Frank, you're going to have to spend the night at the body farm. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> Not knowing that it would set up a long time now, 22 year friendship between Dr. Bass and me. Um, nice. And he always, I always said, why do you, why do you keep inviting me back? I said, well, uh, apparently of all the people who interview him, very few actually read the book. <laughs> mm, right. <laughs> Most, and, and I would see these interviews on local TV and, and around the country, wherever he goes. And they always ask the same, same boring questions. How did you get started opening the body farm? Right. And I would already know all that. So I would jump ahead and like, hey, in this book, you have this case about this person who decomposes. And I thought that blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, here's a kid who did his homework. Let's, let's talk to this guy more. Nice. Yeah. So I love that. I love that. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah. Let's go back to Kevin and Bean show, which I guess is sure. our theme for our show. Oh, right. Um, I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did some really big promotions and stunts there. Yeah. I mean, I the, mean probably the, the biggest ones I've ever known. When we did, well, of course, we had the Lita and Reseda. That was huge. Yeah. And that involved a lot of work on my part of putting all these moving pieces together. Um, and, then, and then like two weeks, right? Yeah, you don't even think about it, really, because that's the nature of morning radio. You've got to strike while the iron is hot. If something comes along, whether it's something that's based on the, the local news or the national news, you know, whether you need that parody song about something before and you need it right away because in a week, no one's going to care. Yeah, and the story's going to be old news. So and that one, um, yeah, Jimmy was spouting off uh, and he and Michael Maintenance Man got into an argument on the air. Um about stuff and i lightning remembers (laughs) uh, lightning remembers it better than i do i mean i'm at the point where i'm not i'm not in the room i'm in the next room over you know in Mm -hmm. the office so it gets to the point like oh we're gonna have a boxing match between these two i'm like you wait really we're really having a boxing match okay so then now what do i have to do well you have to get a boxing ring and you have to get all of the things that are involved. Plus, they want to do a live broadcast. Plus, that means we need uh, judges and announcers. We had Pat O'Brien as the announcer. We had yeah. John Wayne Bobbitt and Adam Sandler and some guy from Channel 9, Kate Cal, as the boxing judges. 
Um, so I'm getting all, I'm lining up all of these things. And then, cause you know, Adam Carolla loves to tell the story about how I didn't return his call for two days. So, <laughs> <laughs> he still has a grudge against you for that. Well, right? I, you know what? I mean, I'll, I'll tell this story. I've told it before. I'll tell it again. Um, Adam's uh, career entry into K rock was relatively easy. So, but, so he has to make it sound hard. You know, there has to mm-hmm. be a bad guy. There has to be a, an antagonist to him breaking into his radio career at K rock, which, as I said, was just a matter of him calling up and saying, I'm going to help coach Jimmy or uh, Michael in the boxing match. So that message comes in, like, of course, we're going to take it. Yeah, there's no question we're going to take it. But at this point in the proceedings, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready to get to send them out to get trained in boxing. Well, we're up to the point where, oh, when is this going to happen? Where is this going to happen how are we going to legally do this? How are we going to make all the pieces come together? So there's a lot of parts that have to come together from on my plate before we get to the part of calling back Adam. So his story is, oh, Frank Murphy, man, he tried to stop me from getting into show business. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it's just he was impatient about it. And I don't blame him. Um, you know, he would have, but he would have, yeah, we would have called him eventually. It's just a matter of uh, he couldn't wait. So he showed up and waited in the hallway for Jimmy to go to the bathroom. And, <laughs> And it was love at first sight. <laughs> I was thinking how that, that was such kismet. This thing just came together. They were going to fight. So we needed a trainer and Jimmy and Adam met and they're like, yeah, that's friends. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was meant to be. I mean, I didn't, you know, I don't feel like I got in the way any more than uh, any other thing, because that's the beautiful thing about morning radio, especially in that era where you had so many listeners and we would do the same thing at, um, at KLOS later where, we decided we were going to have Mark and Brian and me and uh, out there paying off these punishments for football bets that we needed cattle and a veterinarian. And you, just, you go on the air and you start saying these crazy things. And then I'm deluged with calls of, well, I know a guy, I know a guy, here's a guy. <laughs> and then you got to weed through it all. So it's not that, you know, it's, it's not that um, I'm ignoring Adam's call. It's just, I'm dealing with a volume of calls of people coming in wanting to offer whatever it is they can offer for the, the boxing match um 